Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello, today I'd like to welcome a very special guest to the podcast and the Naropa community, C.A. Conrad. Conrad is a writer, a poet, an author, and a teacher, and they are here at Naropa teaching in the Jack Kerouac School for the Summer Writing Program, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I heard that you wanted to start with a poem, and I'd love that idea, so... I'm going to read from this new collection and maybe I could talk a little bit about where the poems come from. Yeah, please. So the first poem is called Kamisado. Kamisado is a military term that means killing your enemies in their sleep. And I was introduced to this word in junior high school history when the teacher was talking about the most famous American Kamisado, which is when George Washington crossed the Delaware Mm with his soldiers to kill British soldiers in their sleep. Yeah. The reason I remember this is because he used the word brave. He said it was a very brave decision. Mm. And I thought that was an odd choice. As a young child, even, I was like, I don't think that's brave. Yeah. To kill these young British soldiers while they're dreaming of, you know, the cliffs of Dover and eating fish and chips or whatever they're dreaming. You know, it's terrible. Yeah. It's strategic, but not brave. Yeah. Kamisado. After breaking in, the wolf calmed the hens so he could take his time with them, twist them open until the right amount of memory fits into the song. Another high price for belonging. Poetry is the opposite of escape, but makes this world endurable. How the smallest puddle reflects the entire sky. A return to every dream our minds talked us out of trusting our math of the star. Your hand around my shoulder, poet, astronaut, you know I love you. I have no sense of failure when I'm with you. Everything matters because everything hurts someone somewhere as it is mattering. We became all we carried into the mast, migratory patterns given to the love again, a way to end the secrecy of suffering, cut a door in the wolf so we can retrieve our dead for a world that matters. So here's the second poem. Okay, and what's this one called? On All Fours, I Am a Seat for the Wind. Okay. Most of my family's international travel is being sent to war. If we judge love, we can kill off anything, drag by our hair across the days until they make their way inside our dreams where we get to evict them. I want to thank the one who invented knocking on the door but no one remembers their name to tattoo across my knuckles. I asked an archaeologist about first time she stuck a shovel in the ground. Her answer had same restorative powers as the gravediggers. When we die, we can no longer wipe the muck off, just lie there becoming shit of the world, 
Eat a chip of your own dried blood. Join me in the cannibal sunshine, fully persuaded through by the world through song. Each morning, a blue jay screams at the edge of the clear-cut forest. I scream with her at the bleeding stumps, scream inside something borrowed, like ocean, like skin. I want to see before I die a mink wearing a human scarf, skin from a handsome, hairy leg. Meow. <laughs> so actually, the part about the blue jay screaming, that's real. Those two poems are from a very large ritual that I've been doing across the United States. Mm -hmm with extinct animals. Like, mm. So I am in my 50s. Okay. And in my lifetime, the planet has seen a 60% loss of all the wildlife. Wow. 60% loss. Yeah. And we've recently found out that we've lost 50% in my lifetime of the coral reefs. Europe has lost, this is a from a recent article in The Guardian from London, Europe lost 75% of its flying insects. Wow. And it's an avalanche of species that are going along with mm. it now. So we're, so what I was trying to do is think about ecopoetics as not just a focus on degraded soil, air, and water, but vibrational absence. When a species leaves the planet, they take everything with them. Their, their heartbeat, their flutter, their, yeah. their footfalls, their hooves. The metaphysical properties of the insects and not just the, like, the material properties. Yeah, right. I like that. But anyway, I've been saturating my body with their sounds wherever mm. I go. And there are a bunch of other ingredients to this ritual, and including writing index cards with messages for strangers and a little drawing of the creature and leave yeah. them in shopping malls and <laughs> Bibles and hotel rooms all yeah. over the place. And people start writing back. Oh, nice. And then I write back and say, you know, I'm the dusky seaside sparrow, and these are the insects I used to eat. And then here's a SoundCloud recording that this nice ornithologist made. Mm. And then eventually I say, oh, in 1988, my entire family, my friends, my neighbors, we were all destroyed and wiped off the face of the planet. Yeah. We don't exist anymore. Thanks a lot. Oh, wow. Then it becomes antagonistic. Yeah. But we really are living in, the, I don't want to get into all of that. I'm trying to focus now on the ritual. And this is the ritual that I'm working on right now. Yeah. Would you say the ritual is you going on tour and kind of writing these note cards for people and having them reach out to you in such a ways that you're responding to them as the insect itself? Or does the ritual go a little bit deeper than that? Well, I write, I have index cards. Yeah. And I write on the index cards a message with a drawing mm -hmm. and an email. And I'd leave them yeah. in shopping centers, laundromats, randomly, yeah. subways, yeah, and yeah, people yeah. start writing back. Does that's that make awesome. sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And then there's an activist element where I'm trying to get legislators to put money aside for land bridges that we have mm. only just a couple. Yeah. And it's a literal graveyard across this country. Millions of animals every single day are trying to cross these highways and they cannot. Mm -hmm. And we've cut off migratory patterns of all kinds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing that we need to think about is what will happen if Trump gets that wall made? What about all those creatures that have to go back and forth? Yeah. The birds can do it, of course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so anyway, I, I've been here all week at Naropa teaching rituals. Mm. Not this one, but we've been building our own. Yeah, yeah. Would you say a lot of your poetry revolves around ritual, revolves around a deep intention, and it's not necessarily just like your mind's thinking of something, you write it down, you're thinking like you're experiencing a lot of things from the world, and then you integrate ritual? And then write or no, I started doing these rituals because 
I grew up in a factory town. Mm-hmm. All my family are factory workers. Yeah. And I didn't want to have anything to do with the factory. It's detrimental to the human experience in yeah. every possible way imaginable. It just turns people into drug addicts and alcoholics. At least that's mm-hmm. my experience. And it just ruins their bodies, their spirits, everything. They're, they become broken. Yeah. But I thought that I'd escaped the factory back in the 80s when I ran away to be a writer, mm-hmm. to be a poet, not a writer. Yeah, yeah. I want to make that clear. <laughs> and well, I found out in 2005, decades later, that that factory was in me. Mm. And it was visible on my desk. And it was a crisis, and I stopped writing. And eventually, I woke up, you know, the better part of a month went by with me deliberately not writing. Yeah. And I started making a list of the problems with the factory. And one of the, this is very Naropa, I would think, (laughs) one of the lines was the inability to be present. And I feel like we're living in this time period where everybody's talking about being present. And I feel like a lot of people are talking about it in a way, almost like a weapon, you know, like, oh, I'm present, you know, but you're not. But what people don't understand is that some people don't have the ability. And especially if you're, the majority of your waking hours are spent being an extension of a machine in a factory. Yeah. You're either going to be depressed about the past or anxious about the future. Mm -hmm. You're not going to want to be present. And then when you leave work, you don't know how to shut it off after years. Yeah. So it's. We're living in a culture designed to prevent us from being present. So that's where these rituals come from. Yeah. I immediately started making rituals to create a place of extreme present. That's the purpose of what I do. Mm. And what I'm doing, these rituals translate into all art forms. I teach regularly in Amsterdam at the Sandberg Art Institute every October. Okay. I have the incoming body of students, the grad students, and I sit down with them as a group and we create rituals so that they can see later in life when they have many more routines after school, mm-hmm. when they are busy with families and careers and the artwork starts to slip away, yeah. that they can find space wherever they're at, no matter what they're doing. Mm. I really like that idea about creating rituals and creating something that will bring you into the present moment for something that like is sustainable to your soul and your heart and who you are and who you're becoming. I really enjoy that. So you're talking about being present and being aware while writing. How do you bring presentness in writing? Like, is there anything that you do personally or? Look, the only thing that matters is the writing. Yeah. So the, I mean, I'm talking about the act of writing. I don't mean the finished product. So if, like the physical act of writing. Like I was saying, my rituals create a space of extreme present. Yeah. Meaning that when I'm doing them, I can't think about anything except what I'm doing and where I'm at. Mm. It's not this type of old kind of writing that I used to do that everybody does where you become ex- inspired and then you write. Yeah. And sometimes you get nostalgic. I don't want any of that. Mm. I feel like it's not something I'm interested in in my writing. I have no time for that. Yeah. Nostalgia is pointless, frankly. I mean, it's useful for people who are having a very hard time, I suppose. But I think to live in nostalgia, which I think many people do, Mm. just creates a terrible space politically, socially, creatively. Because nostalgia isn't present. Yeah. So anyway, I have hundreds of these rituals that I've been doing. My books are all 
the rituals, and then the resulting poems. Mm-hmm. So this new book is called While Standing in Line for Death. The okay. opening ritual, I believe that these rituals could do more than just produce poems. I had a boyfriend who was brutally tortured, raped, covered in gasoline, and set on fire in Tennessee. Yeah. The documentary about my life called The Book of Conrad, the filmmakers went back down to Tennessee with me to try to figure this murder out. Mm-hmm. The police covered it up. Mm-hmm. The police to this day are covering up. Of course, it's just impossible to have your ankles and wrists tied together behind you, hogtied and gagged with your pants and underwear down around your ankles, covered in gasoline and burned alive, and there's no empty gasoline containers on site. And this is in a remote cave in Tennessee. It's not near a gas station. Yeah. You know, so it's just ridiculous. A four-year-old literally could tell you this is a homicide. Yeah. But that's, that's a whole other part of the story. The ritual isn't about that. Mm-hmm. The ritual is about dealing with the suffering that I was going through, especially dealing with the police who were brutal. They brutalized me physically, yeah. eventually, and emotionally, continuously. Yeah. I was very athletic before his murder, and then I gained a lot of weight. It's funny. It's like I became vegetarian instead of vegan and then would eat, like, terrible food. Yeah. But I did a ritual to overcome the depression, and it worked. Nice. And it made me, uh, I was macrobiotic, actually, right up to the point where his murder. Because he and I, we were in ACT UP and Queer Nation Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s. And we had scores of friends die. And we were kind of burnt out at this point. Yeah. And we were taking it easy, enjoying, starting to really enjoy our lives again. And then he's murdered, brutally. Yeah. When I actually believed that I was getting my life together, it actually was the worst part was about to come. And I didn't know it. But the poetry is what dragged me back to the light. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear about all that. You happens could... every day in America. And we're yeah. faced right now with hundreds of anti-LGBTQ laws yeah. for this November. I'm not an optimist, but I think November is going to be fantastic. Mm. We have a record number of, I think it was like 300 a lesbian, gay, transgender, people running for Congress. Yeah. Many, many women, yeah. people of color. We're going to get a hold of the steering wheel, I think, this yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. I'm on board with that. I'm, like, ready for this. I'm not an optimist, but I think it is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You are not the only one on the podcast that has said the shift is happening. It's happening. And I totally agree with you, and we are part of that. Well, so. my new book also has political action rituals. Mm-hmm. Dealing with these anti... Because, you know, I would always be the oldest person at these protests, and there'd be these young 18, 19, 20-year-old protesters who were queer, very brave young people, but yeah. broken, suicidal. Mm. The suicide rate and the violence against gay and lesbians in this country has spiked dramatically in the past year. 70% of that spike are queer people of color. Yeah. But anyway, I have a ritual in the book where I was blowing bubbles in Asheville, North Carolina, the HB2 law, the bathroom law, which was a very violent law in many ways. And mm-hmm. it's nothing compared to the ones that are coming up in November, by the way. Yeah. The one in Massachusetts is going to, if the referendum goes through, it could allow hotel owners and restaurant owners to once again just evict gay and lesbian people legally. Really? Oh, there are already these laws wow. now in the past couple of years that yeah. are existing Man. everywhere. And there are laws in Georgia and Kansas mm-hmm. to protect Christian adoption agencies so they don't have to... Hmm. have gay people adopt children, things like this. Wow. So would you say your poetry is a form of healing 
about healing this and or it's the microphone, it's a message. It's It sounds like you use it in so many different ways, not just to see the light, but to also to show others the light as well. Sure. My main concern is that everybody understands that they're creative. Yeah, I love that. Well, we need creativity. Mm-hmm, for There's sure. absolutely no way that we're going to figure our way out of these problems that are facing us without creative solutions. Creative people are their survivors. Yes. Why do you think creativity does that and or can hold space to do such things like that? Well, creativity is this vital organ that we have in us that is necessary to being able to figure out the new solutions. I mean, yeah. when Einstein said that imagination is more important than knowledge, what he was telling us was that it's far more useful for us to be creating new ideas rather than living in the old paradigms. The old paradigms are clearly not working. Clearly, yeah. So we need, and there are a lot of people, a lot of creative, and when I say creative people, I mean all kinds of creative people. Yeah. Scientists who are creative. There are a lot of scientists right now who are using their creative abilities to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. There's a toilet being designed by grad students in Denver that is going to turn human solid waste into biochar for the first time, Mm. which is unheard of, especially for the United States, because we have the most toxic diet the planet has ever seen. Yeah. We have chemical companies that invent chemicals and dyes just to make money in the food industry. Yep. There's no need for any of it. But when people eat the standard American diet, their solid waste is literally a toxic waste site now. Mm-hmm. So these toilets, these creative young people are inventing, I want to say creative scientists, Yeah, is going to just change everything because it's going to turn the solid waste into these pellets that'll be able to be used for fertilizer and fuel. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. We've got some brilliant people everywhere. Yeah, there is a lot of different creative things coming. It, it's kind of weird because the situations that we're in, the ocean being thrown, stuff just being thrown away in the ocean just randomly, and it all kind of conjugates in this one spot. But people are figuring out ways to clean it up with the imaginations like these ideas they have, they have this creativity. It's kind of weird to think that some of the ideas that come up wouldn't exist if the problems didn't exist themselves. So it's like our creativity is also being transformed by the problems that arise within the situations that we're living in. So it's like our creativity is almost being challenged in such a way where I would love to see our creativity used in more of a, that's what I want to do way and not that's what I have to go clean up sort of way. I agree. And creativity is also for activism. Yeah. When I went to Occupy Wall Street, almost everybody I met was an art student or creative writing student. Mm. It takes creative minds to figure out how to get around these barriers the police will put up. Yeah. I've watched them do it over and over again. Yeah. There'd be a barrier. They would huddle together, come up with a solution. It was a great school. It was a tremendous school. Yeah. And I'm talking about creativity for surviving. I'm talking about the poet Robert Desnos in Auschwitz and Treblinka as mm. a prisoner writing poems. And the Nazis, you know, they, they come and they round him and his other prisoners up and they're going to take him to the gas chamber and kill them all. But because he's the poet, because he's the creative mind in the group, he gets off the truck first and he's a palm reader. He reads palms. So he's gra- He's an early you know, 20th century surrealist poet. They were mm-hmm. into the occult. You know? 
So he starts reading all of the other prisoners' palms, like, you have a very long lifeline. And he's doing it in German, exuberantly. Yeah. And he's dying of typhoid. And he hasn't eaten a solid meal in months. Mm-hmm. But he's dredging up the sincerity and this exuberance. And, these, and the guards are so angry and confused. And he keeps doing it. He won't stop. And then they become despondent. Because hmm. he keeps focusing on the lifeline. You, madam, are going to live a very long life and have grandchildren and, you know, retire or yeah. whatever. And so they load them all back up on the truck, send them back. And a few weeks later, the Allied forces liberate the camp. Wow. And we've been hearing for over half a century these stories from the survivors about a poet who figured out how to save all of these lives without a single bullet. Wow. That's what I'm talking about, creativity. Yeah. That's the main reason I'm talking about creativity's necessity. Yeah. And so when I'm here at Naropa teaching, my main goal, yeah, I mean, I, I love looking at the students' poems. It's not that I don't want to look at their work. Yeah. But my only care is that at the end of my time teaching with them, that they understand that when life takes over and, you know, they get all these responsibilities, jobs, children, whatever happens to them, that they can always find a way to write because 98% of everybody stops doing their art. Almost everybody, hands down. Yeah. I know for a fact, when I was a teenager in Philadelphia, I had a few hundred peers of artists of all kinds. Mm-hmm. By the time we were in our late 20s, about half of everybody was finished. Yeah. And now that I'm in my 50s, it's extremely rare for me to find anybody my age who's still doing their work. But it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I love this idea of creativity because before speaking with you, I thought of creativity as this extracurricular activity thing that you would do when you have some free time. And what I'm loving about hearing what you're saying is creativity is inherently always with you and to nurture it. It's like a garden. You need to water it. You need to plant some seeds. You need to understand that this is a viable thing in your life that does create this energetic flow within you. And I'm, I'm just like really feeling inspired to hear you talk about creativity in such a way like this. Oh, well, good. I, when I do talks, I always make sure that I say that I believe creativity is a vital organ. Yeah. Yeah. And I do mean that. Yeah. We are only on this planet for a short period of time. Yes. I believe we do come back whether we do or not. We have a responsibility right now as humans to deal with all of the corruption we've done to the surface of the planet. As Elizabeth Colbert says, who wrote the book about the sixth mass extinction we are currently in, Mm -hmm. she says, yes, there are a lot of... Actually, let me just read the quote. Yeah, please. There are a lot of things that we could do to minimize what we're doing, but we're not getting back those frogs that I saw that no longer exist. We've lost 60% of all the wildlife. Okay. Uh, there's a there's a beautiful toad called the golden toad that um, just a handful of years ago was wiped out. January of this year, the eastern puma in the eastern United States was completely wiped out finally. Yeah. There are so many species. And, and when I was a child in the 70s, there were 25,000 white rhinos on the plains of Africa. In 2018, there are zero mm-hmm. in the wild and there are three left and they're all in separate zoos. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. It's a major avalanche of life leaving yeah. the planet right now. And that's why I mean we need to be creative. We need to figure it out. There are so many people in Europe right now in particular coming up with these solutions to 
one-use plastic. We've got to stop using plastic. Yeah. I love, I just love your passion about all this. It seems like you have such a clear message, you know, and, and I love how you insert the creativity into this message as well. And I think the students that here at Naropa, especially at the Jack Kerouac School summer writing program, and this is, I think, my eighth year teaching, seventh or eighth. Yeah. They are always my favorite students to teach because they have a, a political body mm-hmm. that's visible. You know, I think everybody does, but I, I feel like a lot of people are more reserved about their politics. Yeah. Naropa encourages this. Yeah. I feel like what Ann Walvin and Jeffrey and Swanee and everybody are doing here mm-hmm. is nurturing something that is going to sustain not only this community here, mm. but it's going to send people out to help change the direction we are headed in. And we are headed yeah. in a very grim direction. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah. But I'm not a dark green. You know, the green, the environmental movement. Many of the environmentalists are dark green and they're, they're like, it's over. There's yeah. nothing left. There are people right now who are saying we have just a handful of years before things get really dark and awful. Yeah. I believe that that's not true. And I'm not an optimist. Yeah. I simply believe that our collective genius can figure the problems out. We have this opportunity right now to stave off this hemorrhaging that's currently underway. And I think we need to actually start with the seven wars we're in. Mm-hmm. The so-called Western world has not seen one of its nations invade seven nations since nazi germany yeah the united states is killing people our drones have killed over a thousand civilians in pakistan alone almost 300 of that number were little kids under the age of five and that was mostly under the obama administration i voted for that man twice but yeah it was difficult the second time mm-hmm. seeing all these people being brutalized yeah what we're doing in the middle east will never be forgiven in our lifetimes but we need to end these wars. We've got to stop killing people for these resources. And we've got to find a new way yeah. of living without those resources. Because those wars are all about the oil and the gas. And we've got to stop it. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't stop consuming these fossil fuels, we're going to have to keep engineering new wars. You know, I can't believe that I'm living in this time when I've seen the gay and lesbian community be co-opted by the military industrial complex. The so-called human rights campaign, the equal sign that everybody loves so much, I yeah. don't. As somebody who is from the 80s, who's an act up in queer nation, I never trusted HRC. Mm-hmm. And when you look at their drop-down menu for the corporations we're supposed to be working for, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Monsanto, Wells Fargo, yeah. like institutional racism and terrorism on every, from like ecology to actual war mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to vote work for Lockheed Martin and build bombs. Yeah. Yeah. And when I think about the people that I met, Marsha P. Johnson, who started the Stonewall riot in 1969. Mm -hmm. I met her in 1990 at a pride event in New York City in Tompkins Square Park. She was standing there with a sign that said Stonewall was a riot, not a trademark. And first of all, I was like, are you Marsha P. Johnson? And she's like, yes, I am. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I was like, I'm so honored to meet you. I think you're probably the coolest person I've ever met. She said, well, of course I am. (laughs) And we started talking. I was like, tell me about your sign. Yeah. And she's like, this is all a mistake, everything. And this is somebody who didn't just have a riot and fight the police, would also then march on the streets for against the war, for labor rights, for tenant rights. I mean, that's, that's what the gay and lesbian community used to be. 
this like intense revolutionary, it was like a new American revolution. Yeah. And I feel like we've lost our way mm. because we've assimilated to the darkest possible regions of this nation. Our job was to convince the dominant culture to join us. Yeah. But instead we thought that the idea was to join them. I think the problem is that most of the most radical creative people of my generation died of AIDS. Mm. And it just wiped out this whole voice around us. And so we were stuck with these sort of like white, young, rich Republicans who want everybody to get married and vote Republican. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just almost like a, I can't constantly live in this state of disbelief. I have to just accept where we're at. I'm actually on the verge of doing a new greeting to this ritual with the extinct animals where I want to appreciate cement. Yeah. I want to appreciate plastic. Yeah. I want to appreciate gasoline and coal. I know that sounds insane, but this is the planet that I live on. Mm-hmm. And this is what we've done to it. Yeah. I don't want to just go off into the woods and pretend that all that doesn't exist. I want to remind myself every day. My hair is very long. I have it up right now, but I'm doing a very long ritual every morning. This yeah. is a very long, this poem's over 5,000 pages long. Oh, wow. And every morning I look at the latest body count and I measure from the very tips of the hair mm-hmm. all the war dead. And I and I just let it grow and grow with these wars. Yeah. So I every morning when I wake up, I'm looking at the latest body counts in these countries, the drone reports, et cetera, et cetera. And I know when I leave wherever I'm at, I'm not going to meet a single person in the United States who's talking about these wars. And when I go to Europe, everybody's talking about them. Yeah. Everybody I meet wants to say, like, why is your country in all these wars? Nobody talks about it over here, and the media doesn't even talk about it over here. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't even know we're in a lot of wars. I don't know how they can't know, but I yeah. guess you're right. Well, it's their filtering systems where they get their information, where they find what's going on. It's not the outlets that want you to know what's going on. War is absolutely evil. Mm-hmm. And there is no other nation on this planet currently waging this much war than the United States. Yeah. Hands down. If you think I'm wrong, show me. Because mm-hmm. I don't think it's true. Lockheed Martin unleashed a couple years ago the F-35 jet. There's never been anything like this on the planet. Mm-hmm. This jet is so sophisticated there will never be a dogfight with it. Because there, there, nobody has anything even remotely close to what this is capable of doing and they're considering it the last fighter jet because that we're only working with drones now as a matter of fact this fighter jet is almost a drone Mm -hmm. some of the drone operators are here in denver colorado and then i mean the drone operators that are killing kids in pakistan iraq afghanistan you know there are artists here's this is more about creativity there are artists in pakistan right now so it's very easy to be in the United States with this isolationist mentality we have and watch TV and Netflix, whatever you want to do, yeah. and just forget that we're murdering people every day. But the people in Pakistan don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. And the artists over there don't have that luxury. And what they found out was the artists that the drone operators in Denver can't see facial recognition on those drones. And it's to protect the drone operators from PTSD. So, mm-hmm. oh, it's okay for the people of Pakistan to have PTSD but just not our precious soldiers here. So you know what they've done? They've taken the photographs of faces of kids that we've murdered, and they've blown them up to the size of fields, acres, so that when those drones come in, they can't not see them. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. 
maybe that will give us more Chelsea Mannings. We need more Chelsea Mannings. It's like humanizing the actuality of what war is to people who are trying to not see it, but they're involved in it. They're trying to like make it seem like it's not this thing that they're doing, but they're participating in something that their soul doesn't agree with. Some heavy stuff. It is heavy, but but it is the reality of the country we're living in. And every tax dollar, you know, that we pay, portion of that goes to this, the Pentagon and the the war machine. Yeah. Trump gave them an $800 billion raise. Mm -hmm. That's insane. That's insane. People need medical attention. We have a huge homeless population right now. When I travel across the United States, part of my ritual involves me sleeping in my car in Walmart parking lots. Mm -hmm. And then, because Walmart is, to me, the ultimate results of manifest destiny the genocide of the native people and wiping out many many wild species to build walmarts yeah and there are nine thousand of them in the lower 48 states Mm -hmm. and they have about half a million items in each one yeah and i listen when i wake up in the morning in my car i go into the walmart i listen to the extinct animals on headphones I walk around the store and to a spiral. And then in the middle of the spiral, I kneel down and write notes. Yeah. But what the thing, the thing that I didn't realize was going to happen is that in doing this, every single Walmart parking lot I visit, there are cars with homeless families. Yeah. With signs in the windshield that say, we need baby formula, we need diapers. There's something about this nation, it's just so easy for some reason to not see the poor. And we create entire neighborhoods so that you don't have to see them. Yeah. And highway systems. But they're there and they're there by the droves. Yeah. So many things to take on. And whew, you know, it's like writing writing is this thing we all learn how to do in school, but then there's this inserting of meaning within writing and within poetry and within the words you write, the the way you write it. I really appreciate and acknowledge the fact that there are some powerful wordsmiths out there that are really shifting people's thoughts about how they should move through the world. And it seems this is something that you've taken on too. And this is not no easy task. You seem like you're holding so much in your heart, so much in your soul that it's like your whole life has turned into a ritual. Well, it is every day. I mean, this is something that it has done for me that my life is always present. Yeah. I'm not interested in dwelling on the past. I dwelled on the past a little bit to cure my depression. Mm -hmm. But after that was over, I'm like, I got to go forward. And I eat massive amounts of garlic every morning. I know that's terrible because you're probably like annoyed by that right now in this little room. (laughs) I love garlic. Okay. Well, it's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, the thing is about this writing program here at Naropa, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been here for a few weeks, like, sitting in, like, listening to the panels. This school is not like any other school yeah. in the United States. There are brilliant creative people. There was a panel yesterday with Don Lundy Martin and, mm. and Rodrigo Toscano and, and Thurston Moore. Yeah. And it was so good. It was such a good panel. And solutions for what we're supposed to do with this culture as it falls apart because it is falling apart but it's the best thing is that the part that needs to fall apart is crumbling right now yeah i think it's beautiful 
And I think that Naropa is like, if I meet people who are like, maybe I should go to writing school, I said, well, I think you should go to Naropa because there's space there that you're not going to find elsewhere. Yeah, we have the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics here during the normal school session. And then during the summer, what you're here for is the summer writing program. And this is what you're speaking to is like this program that kids get to come to. And it's either you get to come for one week or you can come for all three weeks. And every day we have panels, we have lectures, we have guest speakers. And it's just this entourage of intellectual knowledge and just meaning and ritual and and just beautiful like-minded individuals who are doing good work very good work yeah people who are gonna help push the culture forward yes just sort of deviance that can do that you know you need you need a certain amount of deviance to be deviance Mm -hmm. meaning nothing more than outside the acceptable respectable world yeah you know, because yeah. if you maintain your footing in the acceptable world, you're going to wind up not being able to change anything. Yeah. So to speak more about SWP, you've been teaching here for what you say, eight or seven nine or seven or eight years, seven or eight years. Yeah. And I've I've worked in Naropa for a while. And I, I remember I've seen many of your panels, many of your lectures. And I was just always so blown away about your just openness and your just your style of writing. And I'm curious, like, how do you define your style of writing? Like, do you have a style or do you kind of just make it up as you go? Has there something like a a bigger narrative has just been taking place over the years of writing? Well, I feel very fortunate to have just been continuously writing for many. I mean, I started writing in 1975. Yeah. So I'm writing. I've never stopped writing. And it's just part of me now. It's like I don't even think about it. I create these rituals. I do the rituals. I take the notes inside the ritual. They're not documentary notes. Mm -hmm. They're notes that are beyond my thinking. I write with a speed to get ahead of my editor within. Once I get ahead of that editor, the magical language appears. Interesting. And then the poems get shaped through those notes. Yeah. I might use 2% of the words I write down. Huh. Almost and all of the words are thrown out. You go back through that and you choose what you want? Is that how that works? Yeah, I type them all up after they're handwritten and it's pages and pages and pages of notes. <laughs> and then I'll use just a tiny fraction. Wow. What makes it compared to what doesn't? How do you decide? I don't know. It's always different. Okay. And... Yeah, I'm not sure how to explain that any further. Yeah, the process, it just sounds like it's happened. And over over the years you've been doing this, you've kind of developed your own. It's really interesting to, so would you say you probably constantly always have a notepad and oh, always yes. have a pen. Mm-hmm. Are you a fan of more writing it down or like do you put it in your notes on your phone? No, I always write it down okay. and then I type it up. And okay. after it's typed up, then I, and it's just this word splooge. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But that's fine. The more it looks like it doesn't make sense, I know the better it's going to be. Huh. Once your mind starts to follow a trail or a thread or a full sentence, that's the problem. Interesting. When you maintain that within yourself and just go with that, you're not finding the real magical language inside of you. You have to be willing to get ahead of that. Yeah. You have to be willing to yeah. let go of that editor. That editor is invaluable. Yeah. When you're shaping the poem, we've been grooming these editors since we were infants, mm-hmm. you know, like communicating for milk or the shiny earring or whatever. And we just keep accumulating these tools on how to communicate. And these editors, of course, eventually you learn what syntax is and punctuation. Mm-hmm. And that's all well. It, that's fine. 
but it gets in the way of the raw notes. So I, it's, it's a task that's, yeah. that's not always that easy. Yeah. You get caught in mind loops, and so I have tools for getting out of those. Yeah, it's like a jazz freestyle artist compared to someone just reading sheet music and just playing the notes. Absolutely, yeah. That sounds right. I like that. Very cool. Uh, do you notice a difference between, because it sounds like you teach at a couple different places, so when you come to Naropa, is there like a difference in the writing students here compared to other places or would you say writing students in general kind of have this um way about them that they have a collective message they usually want to speak about i'm excited to visit anybody who's learning to write yeah that's for sure mm -hmm. and but i think the difference isn't the students so much as the institutions and this institution here fosters a wider variety of ideas for being in the world than I can find anywhere else. Yeah. Mm, I like that idea. So it's like the stu necessarily the students aren't the people that are different coming to the different universities. It's the university that is allowing the flow of information that you're allowed to kind of like explore and or discuss well, amongst other people. I'm particularly talking about politics. Yeah. I mean, this is the capital scene this time, right? So it's all about confronting... I mean, every year there's a theme that centers around like the destruction of ecology, politics, yeah. racism, mis uh, misogyny, homophobia. These things, we, we talk about these things here. Yeah. I'm not saying these things are not being talked about elsewhere. I'm not saying that. Totally. I'm just saying that there's something here at Naropa that's magical and special. Mm. That when you get here, the land itself lends a particular edge to give students the leverage to just really open up and be themselves. Yeah. Diving into topics that aren't necessarily ultimately explored. I, oh, I see them flourish. Yeah. They're br first of all, they're brilliant mm -hmm. and they really want to be creative. They want community. They want to be, they are very concerned about these problems Yeah, and they want to actually do something about it. That's what I find here at Naropa. Yeah. I don't find students that are just wanting to talk about it. They want to do something about it. Yes, I love that. Thank you. So we have we just have like a couple minutes left, and I just wanted to kind of like highlight you a bit. I know that you've written a bunch of books. I'm just kind of curious. Do you want to share how people can find your writings, how they can find your poetry, maybe a website or a blog that you do, anything like that, so people can just follow who you are? Well, if you go on my website, just C.A. Conrad, just put that into Google, it'll come up. Okay. All of my books are there. My new book just won the Land of Literary Award, which I'm very excited Congrats. about. Thank you. And I have my book, The Book of Frank, is probably... Well, I wrote a book about Elvis that's very popular, but the book I wrote called The Book of Frank is probably my best-selling uh, book, I would say. Okay. It's been translated into nine languages. Well, wow. it's being translated into Polish now. Yeah. The Danish translation came out a couple months ago, and I just got this great review what i'm very excited about mm. my translator lena kalemeyer and i were very excited ovo press published the book okay because it was a full page review with a photograph of me and raving about the book and it's in their biggest newspaper it's like the new york times of denmark i'm not actually the festival isn't in copenhagen it's outside of copenhagen okay so i'm gonna get to be reading with lena from this translation i'm very excited about Awesome. So I really appreciate you coming in and speaking with me. Thank there's you, there's just like this 
passion that you have. There's this knowledge, this insight. I love how you incorporate ritual into everything you do. It seems like there's so many rituals that I could be implementing in my life that I'm hypersensitive and aware to the world state in which I live in and to also ignite other people to invite themselves to like kind of show up in a more meaningful way. And, and I just, I just love your perspective on everything and just thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you. Do you mind if I read one tiny little poem in the new book? I would love it. Please read another one. This is from a ritual that I did in Marfa, Texas, Mm -hmm. where I did 36 rituals a day for 36 days. It was quite exciting. This is like a ritual upon a ritual. It was great. I loved every minute of it. Intention. Saturn point one. Butterfly in a tissue box, not a real one, a painting, a monarch. One more sign for anguish, poured and poured. A choice to feel or stack bricks between. I was sad when my talented friend started designing television commercials. He told me to grow up. But the rocks in the desert I touch signal an endless new place, something without money saying, never tire of demanding love for the world. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Thank you for having me. So that was C.A. Conrad on the podcast. C.A. is a writer, a poet, an author, and a teacher, and is teaching at the summer writing program this semester at Naropa. So thanks again. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.